Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers, formerly the Alabama Stud, because Ron's brother, Rob, stole my name and took it for himself. I'm sure you can feel me on that, Ron. Hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. The real Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. This is the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Ron and his family were putting putting on WrestleMania-style events back in the 50s and 60s in their territories and packing out baseball stadiums with gigantic wrestling events long before the name WrestleMania was ever uttered. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history, as told by the stud. Now, please welcome the originator of the studcast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the super studcast. We step back into the ring and back into time. With my buddy, the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. What's up, my man, Ron? Well, geez, man, right off the bat, you say old Rob's then got involved, just like (laughs) he did with me. He don't like you being the Alabama stud, and he really didn't like me being the Tennessee stud. But, uh, you know, I end up with that name, whether he liked it or not. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, Dave, uh, old Rob can shove it, man. <laughs> you still the Alabama stud, man, if that's what you hey, want. Well, well, thanks. And you're the original Tennessee stud. And, and listen, the book is doing fantastic. I got to mention this because I saw a review. I'm not sure who wrote this, but I saw it on, on one of your Facebook pages. I loved the book. Once I started reading it, I couldn't put it down. I've never read a book that has a plot like this one. It's an easy read. I read it in two days. I highly recommend buying it. I hope Brutus is made into a movie. How awesome would that be? But congratulations, because you're off to a terrific start on the new novel called Brutus. Well, thank you very much, Dave. Uh, I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I have been. I've been lucky. I've been getting a lot of tremendous reviews. Actually, I, <laughs> I'm amazed at them. I, you know, when you write a book, you don't know whether it's a good book or you don't know whether you're an author or not, or you don't know what you, what, what to expect, uh, I guess is a good way to put it. And, and it, it does appear that uh, maybe I have done, I didn't waste my time, maybe. <laughs> I've often thought about that couple of years I spent writing that book that, you know, man, what a waste of time, but maybe it hasn't been a waste of time. I just uh, set it in a drawer for 20 years. And didn't wow. do anything with it, and then pulled it out, and finally finished it, and and thank goodness it's being pretty well received, and uh, you know, and I and I, and I, I know that there's been a lot of people, and I want to thank those people that have uh, sent in great reviews to Amazon.com, and uh, all they do is go to the, the the name of the book, Brutus, and 
And they can leave a review after you've read the book. And I really appreciate all the great comments. In fact, at this point, I don't have anything less than a five-star rating. So wow, I haven't seen anything below a five-star, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with it. And uh, thanks for mentioning it. And, you know, uh, yeah. and, uh, and I, I got I to get you a copy of this, man. <laughs> so, hey, please, please autograph that for me. And listen, when they, if it sucks, they'll tell you on these reviews. So congratulations <laughs> on the success on these reviews because it's sounding pretty good. And listen, once the big bucks start rolling in, Lou, our producer out in San Francisco and I, all we want, Ron, is a Chevy Silverado. Uh, <laughs> Why are you laughing? Stop, each stop one laughing. Jeffy Silverado. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right. Well, that's no problem, man. That's pretty easy. We'll, we'll be able to do that, man. Uh, it may be about 10 years before I collect enough money to do it. <laughs> well, by then, maybe it will drive itself. Maybe they will. Maybe you will have one of those kind of cars by that point. Why not? All right. I know you got a lot to get to today. It's going to be another awesome stud cast. So let's get them saddled up. Where are we headed today? Well, uh, we're continuing. Obviously, we're going back to last week's stud cast, today's training in last week. And uh, and we're going to talk more about uh, the Booker's inspiration, where they get their ideas from. We ended up last week with the ideas from a couple of wrestlers themselves. And uh, one idea in particular that it pretty much is an unimaginable angle presented to me by Joe LaDuke and the Mongolian Stomper, whose real name was Archie Goldie, in 1977. And, uh, and I hope to finish this today's training. I hope this I will be able to get through all this today. Uh, but if not, I I'm, I'm going to tell you up front, uh, we're going to have our first ever part three, maybe. Because uh, I don't want to leave anything out about maybe this the, to me, this was the most remarkable thing that was ever done in Southeastern wrestling history. In any of my wrestling company's history, this angle was just absolutely off the charts. It was scary. It was horrifying is a better word, I guess. So we're going to, we're going to cover that today, and we're going to return to the results with the results of last week's card. I left people hanging about the results of that Friday night, August the 20th card, 1976. We're going to go back and cover the results of that. We're going to also talk about the attendance from that night. And then we're going to dive into what's happening at the end of this extremely successful summer of 1976. Uh, we're going to talk about the success we're having at this point in 76 in West Virginia. We'll talk about a huge talent upgrade. We're going to talk about guys getting vacations and brief stints in other territories. We're going to talk about the Knoxville Fair that's coming to town again just about this time of year. And uh, we're going to be moving out of the park for two weeks and going into the baseball stadium in Knoxville again. We're going to talk about much more than that. And we're going to finish up with the learning tree today. This is a tremendous question. If a wrestler is out selling an injury angle, did they get booked out to another territory while they were away? Uh -huh. And if not, were they and they, and they were legitimately hurt? Did the promoter subsidize their missing payoffs? Sounds like a great question, Ron, and very appropriate for those guys that were, especially the guys that were getting burned by Mephisto. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that's true. I mean, it's an extremely appropriate question, and uh, that's kind of why I picked it, man. I go like, wow, this is just perfect with what's been happening here. So you're getting good at this, Dave. You know, you're right. And, uh, and, and I picked it because it was appropriate. And uh, so I'm looking forward to it. All right. So today 
We're going to begin with the rest of that today's training segment from last week, right? That's it. Right again. So here we go. Uh, I think you're ready, as, as our listeners are, to find out at the end what I had to get out of early last week. So in this today's training, it's the continuation of last week. So we're going to put those Booker's hat back on again. And uh, we're going to find out where Booker's get their inspiration. We're going to put our Booker hats on and uh, get back inside that Booker's mind, basically. So we talked about where Booker's got their inspiration last week. Their responsibility, obviously, is to watch every match just about. They've got to constantly assess their talent. And uh, they got to decide what's getting over and what isn't. Uh, then we talked about the crowd connection, the person I called my crowd connection. And that person, uh, you know, the Booker had to trust. That guy had to have a great personal relationship with fans all around the territory. And that relationship allowed him to get the fans to tell him their true feelings about what was going on. Did they like the wrestlers that were there? Were they into the angles that were going on? He didn't talk to them in those terms, but they basically, uh, they discussed with him, hey, I like these, these two guys against each other, you know? And uh, so he gets all this information in and he brings it directly back to the booker. That was another important thing for bookers. So we fin when we finished the last studcast uh, and I began to explain the, the last place uh, uh, bookers got ideas, that was from the wrestlers themselves. And I brought up two wrestlers at the end of last week's today's training, in particular, who brought me an idea that was so outrageous. My first instinct was to just say flat no. <laughs> I, I, I can't, we can't do that. So uh, those two wrestlers were Joe LaDuke and the Mongolian Stomper. And Stomper was managed by Gorgeous George Jr. in this time frame. And those two, when they came to me with the idea, they had already worked a long and very successful program with all kinds of different matches. And that program was about to end. And I was about to switch out and give them some other wrestler to work with, you know. <laughs> But uh, they enjoyed working with each other. And it showed when I watched them work together that they really liked to work with each other. So I always talk to guys about their upcoming programs and the angles that I had in mind, you know, and, and what I was going to try to do to spice up the program a little bit, add a little bit to the angle, do something else that's a little different so that, you know, we could get more sellouts out of these angles and out of these programs before we switch guys off to other opponents. So they both came to me early one Saturday on TV, where it all started. This Every Saturday, we always did interviews. We had to pre-record them for the other markets that we were sending the program to. And they had Gorgeous George Jr. with them. But there was definitely, he wasn't responsible for this idea. I knew that right away. In this little conversation in the back of the television studio in Knoxville, Joe LaDuke kind of took the reins of the conversation, and he started to lay out this most unusual and dangerous idea that I'd ever heard. He said that he and Archie Goldie, the stomper, had been talking about something they wanted to do. Each wanted to prove their strength and do something that had never been done in wrestling before. Now, obviously, that meant it was something special because there wasn't much in wrestling that had never been done before. By oh, 1977. Yeah. yeah. And, and this concept, uh, they're going to do something. You, this is something's never been done before. Well, that kind of intrigued me. So I said, okay, well, good. Tell, tell me what you're going to do. So Joe LaDuke says, uh, we want to 
each break a concrete block on our heads with a sledgehammer. <laughs> one week apart on TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that was kind of my I, my reaction was similar to that, you know. So, <laughs> so I, I right away began to shake my head. No, now gorgeous George Jr. He's been brought along. He's managing the stomper, but he's behind the two of them, and I can see him standing back there. And when <laughs> when Joe LaDuke tells me that idea. Uh, Gorgeous George starts shaking his head no like I was. Wow. You know, like, oh, no, Ron. <laughs> yeah, this is crazy. So they could pretty quickly see where my mind was going. And I, and I asked myself, uh, how were they going to do that without risking their own help? I mean, really? <laughs> you know, I really didn't understand the whole concept. And we're about to do interviews. But, you know, they assured me as soon as I said that to them, you know, how are you going to do this, guys? We're out getting hurt. You know, they both assured me that they wouldn't get hurt, but I, I definitely had my doubts about it. So I, I said, look, we we got to go back to cut these interviews and let me think about it. A few days later, we end up in the same dressing room together, which didn't happen very often. We're in a lot of cities that we were in the same dressing room, the heels and the babies. But we were at this point. So I, we sat down, uh, the three of us. Uh, Gorgeous George took no part in this conversation. And we we dealt a little deeper into what they had in mind. And again, I told them, man, after hearing I, I feared for their health. Man, uh, I told them this was a truly dangerous idea. And, and I'd feel responsible if something went wrong, which I was being very honest with them. And both Stomper and LeDuc, they wouldn't take no for an answer. I mean, they refused to allow this idea not to happen. And they swore to me that they would take full responsibility if something bad happened. I could I could definitely see they were determined for it to happen. And a lot of that was because it was their idea. I mean, they had thought of it and they didn't want to get turned down. I could see it in their eyes. They saw something in it. And as this goes on, I'm going to begin to see it too, you know. So after a very tense few minutes in which I kind of still shaking my head no, I went ahead, guys, and I said, I'm going to give you guys the green light, man. You know, but I made them a promise again, right then, that they weren't going to hold me responsible if, if they got hurt. So in all of my days as an owner and a promoter of wrestling companies, and, and I, I've been in four of them, built four of them, I had never, and I would never, ever again see two wrestlers so committed to their sport as Joe Duke and Mongolian Stomper in this trying to do this angle. So the angle begins the following Saturday. Gorgeous George Jr. comes out with the stomper, beginning of the television program. Uh, he goes to the desk with Les Thatcher, and he makes a very vague challenge. We don't push it real strong at the very beginning. This is the week before we're going to do something. And he just vaguely says that, hey, I want to challenge Joe LaDuke to do something that my stomper was willing to do next week on TV. And the stomper's going to do it to prove he's a better and a bigger and a tougher man than Joe LaDuke. Hmm. It's kind of left at that. Well, obviously, before the show's over, Joe LaDuke comes back out and says, hey, I'll take the challenge. I don't care. He Nothing he's going to do that I can't do. So the next TV show, following week, Gorgeous George Jr. comes to TV. He brings a standard concrete block. You know, it's about six inches thick and about 12 inches long, the kind they build houses and stuff with. He also brought along his sledgehammer. So we asked Les at the opening of the show, uh, to come into the ring later and during the personality profile, which was always in the middle of the show, 
And he said he would then explain what he wanted to do to prove without a doubt that his stomper was a better man than Joe LaDuke. So when it came time for the personality profile, middle of the show, Les joined Gorgeous George Jr. and the stomper in the ring. Then Les heard for the first time what the three of them wanted to do. That George would break a concrete block on Stomper's head with a sledgehammer next week if Joe LaDuke was man enough to do it the following week. <laughs> Les was dumbfounded. <laughs> he couldn't speak. I mean, yeah, I could see him from the control room where I was sitting up in the control room. He had the same look on his face as when they suggested it to me. <laughs> it was like, are they nuts? What's going on here? So gorgeous George went on with his demonstration. He had Stomper sit down on the mat and hold the concrete block on top of his head. He got behind the Stomper and he raised the sledgehammer man high up over his head. And he acted, he just acted as if he was going to bring it down and break that block right then and there. And the studio audience and Les screamed. They, they thought, oh, no, 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 don't, no, don't do it, don't do it. So, uh, you know, and the... So, <laughs> I didn't I didn't uh, tell Les what was going to happen intentionally because this angle was so good. And, I, and because I wanted to see his expression on his face when they told him what was going to happen. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. And when he thought it was about to happen, I saw him look into the camera and, and he knew I was upstairs as if he was looking up at me <laughs> in the control room like, are you stupid, Ron? What are you doing here? You know. <laughs> I could see how upset and apprehensive he was about this might really, is this going to happen on my show? (laughs) Somebody's going to get killed on my TV. It was a tremendous personality profile because it was spontaneous. It it left the man, Les I'm talking about, who was in charge of the show, and especially that personality profile segment, that was his baby. It left him totally concerned. And and it was obvious. It was really obvious he was. His facial expression when when Gorgeous George says, we're going to break a concrete block on his head with this sledgehammer, his facial expression told the story, man. Uh, <laughs> it, it wouldn't have been nearly as good if I had told him beforehand what this was all about. So at the end of the TV show that day, I remember Les came screaming, running up into the control room looking for me asking me, have you lost your mind? <laughs> what, what are you talking? Are you going to do this? <laughs> so as you would imagine, though, people at home and the people in the studio, the next week's TV show probably had astronomical numbers because who wouldn't want to see this? You know, it's like, wow, he's going to do what? So Les refused to go into the ring the following week with the Stomper. And Gorgeous George. It was the first time Les had not taken, actually taken part in a personality profile. He did sit at the desk, though, at the set, and he described what was happening. So this is the week that Stomper's going to do the deal. So Stomper sat down uh, in the middle of the ring, and the crowd and the audience is, you know, they're they're intent on watching this. I mean, obviously, this is going to be crazy. And then Gorgeous George went around behind him and he placed a small towel on the top of the stomper's head. And uh, that was going to be to keep the concrete block from scraping his head, you know, and maybe the pieces of the block, when he breaks the block, uh, maybe cutting the top of his head. So it made some sense. Yeah, go ahead. Wait, when you're, when you say the stomper just sat down on the mat, do you mean like 
we would sit cross-legged on the or on Just the floor, like an Indian would sit there. Right. Okay. Cross okay. His so leg. his butt was on the mat. His butt's on the mat. He's got a concrete block on his head. Right. He, he's, he's got a towel. Is he on. Steadying is the stomper steadying, holding the block. Yes. Here's what happens. Uh, okay. So, so he, gorgeous George, puts this little thin towel on the top of the stomper's head. And he takes the block and sits it on Stomper's head. And then Stomper reaches up and he puts a hand on each side of the block so that he can steady the block and keep it straight because he's going to get hit in the head with a sledgehammer. So, he does, so he, he, he's, this is an unbelievable deal. I mean, you know, the people talk about this in Knoxville to this very day, what happens in the next two shows. So George slowly raises this sledgehammer high above his head. There was absolute silence in the studio. I think everybody, including me, was holding their breath. And uh, boy, here he comes with that sledgehammer. I mean, he didn't tap it. He hit that concrete block hard. And the blow came crashing down on Stomper's head. It looked like the sledgehammer hit the back of Stomper's head. Wow. I mean, uh. And his body went sideways. He, he like bent over sideways and recoiled from the blow. It kind of pushed him down and then he set back up straight. The block shattered. I mean, it shattered in pieces and it scattered all across the ring. And there was a gasp from the studio crowd. And Les, who was at the set, you could hear Les go, oh, gosh. It was like everybody there, everybody <laughs> that witnessed it was like, whoa, my God. God, did he really do that? And it was a shoot. It was absolutely for real. I mean, you know, I'd never seen anything like it myself. I was like, God, did they just do that? I can't believe that. So there was silence as a somper. You know, he seemed addled from the blow for a second, but he slowly rose, got up on his feet, and Les called for an instant replay. So this moment right here was historic. I mean, we were the only ones in wrestling doing instant replays at this time. And there was never a better moment in the history of Southeastern wrestling for an instant replay than what we had just seen. It was unbelievable in slow motion. It was just, oh, it was like, wow, the sledgehammer had to have hit him in the head. You just, It looked <laughs> like it hit him. It's like, wow, how did he get up? And when it showed back in slow motion and the fans in the, audio, in the studio see it again, they responded the same way they did the first time. Oh, they're all there. Oh, my God. So they instantly went silent again. And that silence told me that every person out there watching TV that day, they had to be totally impressed with the stomper. I think anyone, you know, everyone was, was they were just happy to, uh, to, to see, even though he was the guy they hated and they were horrified and they booed him like crazy, they were happy to see him get up. I mean, he survived it. They had to have tremendous respect for him. Like, God, how can he do that? Of all the TV shows that I had promoted up to that point, none of them had ever been nearly as dramatic or breathtaking as this show. I mean, thousands and thousands of people watching who had ever said wrestling was fake, they just changed their opinion, by God, of whether wrestling was real or not. It made me worry about what could happen next week when Joel LaDuke did the same thing. No doubt that Ron, that's scary stuff right there, because it, it seems like to me, anything can happen. 
no matter what the circumstances. But wait a second. You are not going to leave us hanging again this week, are you? <laughs> oh, well, Dave, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm sure you and the listeners are not going to be real happy with this problem. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You are not going to leave us hanging again, are you? <laughs> oh, well, well, Dave, I, I think I said in the opening today that I might not be able to finish this today because <laughs> I really don't want to hurry this story because it's such a special event in Southeastern's history, in wrestling history. And I didn't get all well, of last week's show done. So, you know, right, I got but, a lot to do this time. So yeah, but so there's no way I can get the rest of this story done this week because I got so much else to do in this one. Yeah, but but anyway, where was Joe LaDuke when all of this was happening? And then, so it was going to be the following week when this was, uh, when Joe was going to take his turn for this? Yeah, yeah. Joe's turn next week. And uh, okay. Joe's sitting in the back watching this on a monitor. <laughs> wow. Okay, Ron. So, you know, so, Joe, right. Joe's, Joe's got some guts too, man. I mean, you know, that this this is crazy. This is crazy. And people well, go, I mean, I have a thousand questions happened. and I'm curious what, what it is they knew about a concrete block and a sledgehammer and their own heads that somebody like I didn't know or anybody in this audience. All right, so I see what's coming. So, we're going <laughs> for the first time to get a part three, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it, Dave. Okay. We're, we're, we're going to have part three next week. We're going to have Joe Duke, And, you know, I'm afraid, you know, <laughs> but I can assure everybody out, though, that part three is going to be something even more compelling than this one, by far, as a matter of fact. And I guarantee next week, we're going to get the entire end of this once-in-a-lifetime angle. We're not going to go to part four. We're going to get it all in by next week. And uh, I can tell you, you know, you want to come back and listen to this next week because it's even crazier than this one. All right. And how would you miss that? It's free at tnstud.com. All right, Ron. So we'll we'll go along with you one more time. So where are we writing next? Well, we're going to finish last week's uh, studcast uh, built around the August 20th, 76 card. Like I mentioned earlier in the show, we'll get the results of that card. We'll talk about the attendance for that one as well. And uh, before I remind everybody what the card was on August 20th, 1976, I want to give the listeners the attendance that was there on August 20th, 1976 in the Chilhowee Park Amphitheater. And, and about how many were there that night? It was another 6,000. I mean, we had had 6,500 the week before, which was an all-time record. And we came back and put more than 6,000 in there again for the third week in a row. Well, Southeastern was obviously on fire. So what happened that night in the matches? All right. The, those people that listened to the last week's studcast, uh, they, they may recall that Les Thatcher and Louis Tillette had a little bit of heat that started in the first segment of that television show. And uh, Les got upset with the way Louis was uh, not respecting him. And he went back uh, into the control room and he changed the first match on that card from Louis Tillette versus DeVoy Brunson to Louis Tillette versus <laughs> Les Thatcher. And I didn't mind it, you know, I, yeah, because I, I know Les, you know, and he had a little bit of pride and, you know, he kind of got insulted and, and uh, he wanted to he wanted to have a match with Tillette. Let's just see see about this. So, so I actually liked it because there was a little personal conflict there that was not expected. I didn't expect him to have a problem, and it turned out to make that first match of the night 
something special for the fans. So Les had not worked a Knoxville card for quite a while, months and months, because I wanted him to be exclusively associated with the program, the TV program, rather than just being a wrestler. So that idea had worked very well, and the fans were enjoying him as a TV commentator, maybe even more than they liked him as a wrestler. So this match had everything you could want in an opening match. The crowd was into it. From the time Louis Tillette came to the ring until Les Thatcher's hand was raised on a disqualification of Tillette at the end of the match, these people loved it. And so did I. I watched it. I, I had to watch it. I wanted to see just exactly uh, how pissed off <laughs> Les was. So I would have brought it back the next week, but it wasn't the direction I wanted to go with Les. Uh, we both agreed. We talked about it after the match that the TV show was more important than any wrestler, especially one in just the first match of the card. So he, we both agreed on that concept, and Les went back to just doing television again. Second match was a quick one with the great Mephisto uh, making a, a, a winning a handicap match against two opponents. He made it look easy. He had a little struggle with George McCrary, who was one of the guys he was against, but he didn't have any with the other guy, Rick Connors. And Mephisto's finished off uh, Rick Connors with his camel clutch. And then he took what he had not done before. He, instead of going directly back to the dressing room after he beat these two guys, he got out and took a slow and enraging victory lap around the ring afterward. And he kept bowing. He bowed to the, all the ringsiders. And then when he got to the grandstand side, he bowed uh, four or five times, and the more he bowed, the louder that crowd booed. I mean, it was crazy. He he was becoming red hot as a heel. There was no doubt about it. Third match was the Southeastern Championship. New champion, the gladiator, Dick Steinborn, was defending against the former champion, Tor Tanaka. Obviously, Tanaka was managed by Homer Odell. And Tanaka was still very upset with Homer. <laughs> because of what had happened the week before. Uh, Homer basically cost him the title, and he hit him in the head with the southeastern belt and cut his head open, too, and put a few stitches in his head. So this match looked as though it was going to be a repeat of the week before. Tanaka was in real trouble because the gladiator at the end of this match, he put an abdominal stretch on him. I didn't know you could put an abdominal stretch on a guy as big as Tanaka and as wide as Tanaka was. But uh, the Gladiator was a tremendous wrestler, and he put a perfect abdominal stretch on Tanaka was going to lose. He was going to give up. And the referee got in there asking him if he was going to give, and Tanaka took advantage of it, and he reached out with his free hand and jerked the referee into Steinborn, into the Gladiator. And when uh, they collided, both of them went down. And again, Homer did the same thing he had done the week before. He ran around to the timekeeper and he grabbed the championship belt away from him and he jumped on the apron. And he motioned again for Tanaka to get the gladiator and bring him over to him. Like, I'm going to get it right this time, you know. So, so Tanaka fools Nelson's the gladiator and he forces him over toward Homer, who's standing on the apron. He's got the belt above his head and he's ready to blast the gladiator. And like, this time for sure, by God, I'm going to get him. And the ref wasn't hurt quite as bad as he was the week before when he had gone down in a similar situation. And he started to recover. Uh, but he was still down. He still was on the face first on the mat. So the gladiator struggled against Tanaka, you know, because 
Tanaka had him in the full Nelson. He's trying to shove him over there so that Homer can blast him. And just as Homer was about to smash the gladiator with the belt, the gladiator switched the full Nelson on Tanaka. And, uh, you know, the gladiator, uh, Dick Steinborn was a tremendous wrestler. I mean, he just made that look so easy. He just, bam, all of a sudden he's behind Tanaka, and Tanaka's got his hands up in the air, and Dickie's in charge. So it looked like it was going to happen again, just like it did the week before. Homer was about to come down, and he was going to crack Tanaka again. And Tanaka broke free of the full Nelson, and he threw his hands up over his forehead, trying to stop the blow he was expected and thinking, Homer's, Homer's not going to get me again. And Homer froze, man. He had the belt still up in the air, but the gladiator, being that smooth chain wrestler they would, he just dropped down so smoothly behind Tanaka, ran his head between his legs and schoolboyed him right over his body and had him pinned. The referee was right there, and he counted Tanaka out again. <laughs> and their crowd popped just like they had the week before. Tanaka came up furious. He's mad at Homer again. And Homer's still standing on the apron ring holding the belt and looking like a fool, man. Like, oh, dog, what have I done now? And Tanaka went for him, man. But before he did, the ref grabbed a hold of the gladiator's hand, raised his hand, grabbed the belt from Homer, gave it to the gladiator, and the gladiator rolled out of the ring. Now it just left Homer and Tanaka. Homer's still on the apron. Tanaka's inside the ring. And Tanaka's mad. And the fans start going crazy. They want Tanaka to get Homer, man. I mean, big time. So Tanaka gets in Homer's face. And Homer's still out there on the apron. And for a second week in a row, Homer, he'd cost Tanaka a win. When Tanaka reached over the top rope, he grabbed Homer and he hurled his big butt over there into the ring with him. The crowd exploded, man. Homer rolled over on his knees and he and he sat up and started to beg Oh, Tanaka like, oh, God, please don't do nothing to me. And the crowd, boy, they wanted to see Homer's demise badly. They were into it. But Homer real quick, like, crawled out of the ring and he headed for the dressing room by himself. <laughs> you know, Tanaka stayed there a little bit longer but uh, Tanaka was really upset with Homer. It's getting worse every week. The next match was a crazy one. It was the best three out of five falls for the Southeastern Tag Championship. It was an idea I'd come up with to have a longer type of tag. I'd never seen the best three out of five. So Golden and Stallings looked great in this match. The Von Steigers won the first fall, but then Golden and Stallings just kept getting stronger as the match went on. Young guys against a little older guys. The Von Steigers were were a little older. Golden and Stallings end up winning three straight falls after they lost that first one. And the last fall was won by disqualification of the Von Steigers. Golden had caught Carl Von Steiger two times. He'd won one fall already with a beautiful drop kick off the top rope, and he caught him again in the third fall and had him covered again. Uh, and they were going to win the match, but they weren't going to win the belt. So he hold Oh, Carl's brother, Kurt, he's a pretty fast-thinking guy. He's out there on the apron. He sees what's about to happen. He comes in the ring, and he goes over, but he doesn't stomp Golden. He stomps the referee in the back, and the referee gets up and disqualifies him. What's he going to do? He raised the hands of Stallings and Golden, but the Von Steigers left the ring. They've been disqualified, and they left the ring with the belts. Now, uh, you know, there was not only a lot of controversy about the ending of this match, 
But the Von Steigers disappeared from Southeastern with the belts for seven weeks after this match. Nobody knows where they went. I know where they went. You know, that they were going back home to the Northwest up there around Portland, Seattle. That's where they lived, and they were taking themselves a vacation. But the fans were like, wow, what happened to the belts? What happened to these guys? So the last match on this card was the Texas death match between Don Carson, managed by Tora Tanaka, and myself. I'm managed by my dad, Buddy Fuller. So Terry Funk's pressure on me not to lose a single match. He he had already made it very plain uh, weeks earlier that if I lost one single match between uh, that time and October 10th when I was scheduled to wrestle him for the world title, that I would not be the guy to challenge him. And uh, this was an extremely dangerous match for me because Tanaka was in Carson's corner. And Tanaka being in his corner wasn't bad enough. It's a Texas death match, which meant basically there's no rules to this match anyway. It was the ultimate danger of my losing right there and losing the shot to Terry Funk. So my ace in the hole, though, I had an ace in the hole, was the fact that I still had Don Carson's glove that I left the ring with the week before in the pole match. So this match is a Texas death match. It went about 10 falls. It had 10 30-second rest periods after those falls, and it had several counts that almost went to the 10 count. And by the 10th fall or so, Don Carson was not able to get up. And I, I became the winner of the match. <laughs> so a little bit of everything happened in this match. So uh, I had Carson bleeding early because I loaded up his glove and I used this peanut butter on him. But I ended up bleeding a little bit later in the match because Tanaka's going to open me up with one of those karate chops. And while that's going on, uh, the referee's off with my dad and Carson who are fighting outside on the floor. Fans are seeing everything in this Texas death match. They were about exhausted as the end of the match as Carson and I were. So when the final 10 count was made on Carson and I struggled to remain, I was up standing on my feet, but I was really struggling to even stand up. And uh, he got the 10 count. The referee raised my hand. I collapsed in the ring. And uh, my dad rushed into the ring and he picked me up and he raised my hand. And then Tanaka attacked my dad from behind. He piled-drived him and he threw him over the top rope. Uh, Then Tanaka came and started on me. And then when the referee tried to stop him, he threw the referee over the top rope. Well, I couldn't do too much fighting back against Tanaka. I was already exhausted from Mm. probably a 40-minute Texas death match. So he was able to take Carson's glove off my hand. And he ended up getting Carson over his shoulder. And he took the glove and Don Carson over his shoulder and carried him to the dressing room. (laughs) Pick of a finish. <laughs> well, uh, obviously exhaustion on both parts, and had Tanaka not not been there, uh, maybe it would have had a, a totally different ending. It sounds like another great night for Southeastern fans. I think it's time for a break. Hey, let's do that. We'll take a quick break, and we're coming back in moments. This Studcast will continue right here. Stay with us. Super Studcast number 32 follows the wrestling career of the King Jerry Lawler and his early relationships with his favorite wrestler, Jackie Fargo. Discover how a budding young artist became interested in one of the city's most popular sports. The Almost Two Hour Part 1 is a fascinating look at how a complete unknown becomes one of the most popular people in Memphis history. At tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. 
Learn how he wrestled all the greats and one not-so-great actor, Andy Kaufman. Worked for many wrestling companies, from some of the smallest to WWE. His life has been a fantastic journey that few could ever dream of. This Super Stud Cast is as truly amazing as its subject. At TNStud.com or Patreon.com slash StudCast. Only $2.99 for an unbelievable ride with one of the all-time best. Don't miss this one. All right, David Summers, back in another StudCast. Remember, TNStud.com. That's TNStud.com. Every one of these StudCasts are listed there. The photos are there. And even photos of the man Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, plus the T-shirts are available as well. All right, Ron, you mentioned in the opening that there were a lot of things happening, like the Knoxville Fair coming to town. How is that going to affect the wrestling situation? Because the fair, of course, as everybody knows, can be a huge distraction when the fair's in town. There you go. And, and that's, a, that's a good point, Dave. And it was fair time in Knoxville. And uh, we weren't going to be able to even have a match on the following Friday night, August 27th, because they're setting up for the fair. So we're going to not have our next match in Knoxville until Friday, September 3rd. We're going to be like we were the year before in the Bill Meyer Baseball Stadium, which was almost in the downtown part of Knoxville. Uh, We're going to miss an entire week with no wrestling in Knoxville, which is a very rare occasion. Uh, This fair... Obviously, it would be setting up on the Friday night that I talked about the following Friday, and they're going to be there for two weeks. Uh, We're still going to be working that night, however, on Friday night, August the 27th. So I'm going to talk about that night instead of the Knoxville crowd that we normally would have talked about. And that particular night, we're going to be more than 200 miles north of Knoxville. We're going to be in Bluefield, West Virginia. So we've not spent a lot of very much time talking about this particular market. It had its own television station. Uh, We'd been on the air on that television station since January of 1976 for about nine months at this point. Fans in West Virginia, Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, and Western North Carolina, they were watching the same Southeastern TV show as the fans right there in Knoxville on the east side of Tennessee. So when we took this live wrestling to Bluefield, In March of 1976, about two months after we ran our first television show, it was too early. And back in the day when I was talking about this, it failed. Uh, We failed when we went there to wrestle in the live events. And there was many reasons for it. And I discussed it in some of the prior studcasts. So when we returned again, it's not going to be until Monday, July 12th. We're going to run that town on Monday nights. We started on July 12th, 1976. And we ran in their municipal auditorium. And we were welcomed back the second time we went. We hadn't been there since March 22nd. We go back months later. We go back to a sellout. I mean, now they know us. Now they've seen enough programs. Now it's time to be there and running live events. So, you know, we'd uh, not had a chance to run it ever on a weekend. So we got this Friday night that's off. And I said, you know, why don't we run that sucker on a Friday night? just to see what we can do with it. So, you know, I intentionally left some guys off the card because I expected we are going to sell it out, you know, the Bluefield, West Virginia card for Friday night, August the 27th. Uh, Let's talk about that card. So the first match that night was George McCray, who was a newcomer to Southeastern, wrestling against another newcomer, Bill Ash. 
These were two young guys, but they were very good for their age. They went 20 minutes, time limit draw, but they had those fans going crazy the entire 20 minutes. It was a darn good opening match. The next match was two other young stars, and Mike Stallings, who'd been on TV for the whole nine months, and uh, he was pretty much over in, in Bluefield. Uh, they liked him up there. His opponent was getting his first match ever for Southeastern. He was much less experienced than Stallings, but he's going to go on to become one of the most famous wrestlers in history. He was trained by my grandfather Roy's brother, Herb Welch. He was trained by Herb. And this wrestler would become famous for just a slap. And it's going to be called the slap heard around the world. And I'm talking about Dr. D, David Schultz, who slapped John Stossel on live national TV when he was working in WWF. You know, so David Schultz is going to work for me not only in southeastern Knoxville, but a couple of years down the road, he's going to be in the first crew that ever goes with me to southeastern Pensacola. Uh, David Schultz won that night, and uh, it was just one of the first wins that that boy was going to get in his career. Third match was something that they had never seen in that part of the country. Two major stars going at it for the Southeastern Heavyweight Championship. The new champion, the Gladiator, was defending against the massive Tora Tanaka managed by Homer Odell. And this match tore the house down, man. Tanaka was disqualified for Homer's interference. Tanaka was mad at Homer again, just like he had been the Friday night before. The last match was my cousin Jimmy Golden and I against two guys that had tremendous heat at this point. And I don't mean that as a pun. And I'm talking about the great Mephisto and Louis Tillette. Now, obviously, the great Mephisto has heat, and he knows how to throw it, too, obviously. So we won when I put the fuller leg lock on Louis, and Jimmy dropped kick the great Mephisto off the top rope and drop kicked him completely out of the ring. <laughs> he never touched the ropes. He went sailing out into the crowd. So did it sell out that night, Ron? Uh, yes, it did, Dave. Uh, <laughs> I bet it did. You know, <laughs> in fact, there was probably more fans turned away that night than got inside the building. But I, I did learn some important things from my experience from running matches that far away from Knoxville. Uh, I'd kind of created a short trip territory in Knoxville without really intending to. I really didn't have any choice. I didn't have a lot of major cities. So my guys were getting spoiled. My wrestlers were spoiled. And I knew from working in Florida territory and the Georgia territory that guys were willing to give up bigger payoffs to get a shorter trip. You know, they were tired. They got tired of being on the road every night and doing so many miles. So Southeastern was already developing a reputation as a territory where guys could make big money and at the same time be home by midnight every night. And there wasn't another territory on the planet that could make that claim. Nobody could do that other than Southeastern. So I began to see the big picture in this night in West Virginia on a Friday night. Uh, and the guys did too. They said, Ron, Friday night, we usually end up right there at home. And now we're the furthest we ever get from home on a Friday night. I felt what they were saying is, you know, we don't really want to run these long trips. We want to to have this be home by midnight. Uh, so, uh, you know, I began to see the big picture, basically. And so in order to continue, I felt like in order for me to continue to get better talent that was going to provide me with even bigger payoffs for everybody, 
I was going to have to stop going to West Virginia. (laughs) It was pretty simple. It was twice as far from Knoxville as any other city we ran. It didn't draw as good as some of the cities in Kentucky where they had bigger buildings. And it was, it was, uh, you know, twice as far from Knoxville. So Southeastern wouldn't be going to West Virginia anymore by the end of 1976. We're going to go there for a few more months. And my West Virginia, uh, I guess my West Virginia venture, I would call it, was closed. I decided that I didn't want to take guys in my territory that far anymore. So let's get back to Knoxville and the fair. So that meant after the Friday night in West Virginia, we're going to be in Bill Meyer Baseball Stadium, pretty much in downtown Knoxville for the next two weeks. Now, a change of venue is never good for wrestling business or any other business. When you change your store location or anything else, it's difficult to get to get things started back again. And uh, we are also competing on with the fair, as you already mentioned, Dave, uh, which is pretty strong competition on the weekend. It was hard to deal with the fair. Add to that fact that some wrestlers ha- had been wanted to take a vacation, a brief vacation, and it seemed like an ideal time because business is going to drop some because of all the things that's going on. You're not in the park. Uh, you're in a baseball stadium. Uh, you've got the fair in town competing with you. So that's going to mean fewer matches on these upcoming two Knoxville cards in the baseball stadium. Now, this is an example of what's happening in Southeastern at this point. The Von Steigers, like I mentioned earlier, they're going to be gone for seven weeks. They're gone off to the northwest part of the country, and they're going home for a vacation. Ron Wright, who had already been burned by Mephisto on August the 13th, he's in the middle of an extended vacation that's not going to end until two days before Terry Funk's title defense against me. Uh, Bob Armstrong, uh, out since being burned by Mephisto on July 30th and working in Florida, is going to come back and work two Fridays, these next two Fridays in Knoxville in September. But then he's going to go back to Florida until the first week in December of 1976. So that meant that Bob Armstrong was only going to work two shows for Southeastern in four months since the time he got burned. Uh, so there are a lot of things in limbo here in Southeastern at this point. Uh, we got short crew. we got fewer stars. and. Uh, we're going to be kind of in a in a state of flux, I would call it here as a booker, until we get that world championship night, which is October 10th of 76. Did you encounter the fair every year? Was it a similar situation every year when the fair would come to town? Kind of, uh, 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 like you said, in flux situation? Yes. Every year, the fair and the fair came there every year, first two weeks in September, probably had been for 75 years, maybe and more. Who knows how long a, that that had been the case. But when it happened, obviously, you couldn't run in the park. You didn't want to run in the Coliseum because you're competing right. with the fair. You're not going to have a big crowd. So I would go to this baseball stadium, which had a covered grandstand. But when it rained, it was a mess. And did you uh, feel one like no of the, matter what you did on TV or in the, in wherever you were performing, that it it really didn't matter. No, that, that's it. That was your feeling. I mean, you yeah. you're not going to do real big crowds. Right, you're not right. going to do six thousand people. Yeah, you know, on on those two nights, those two Fridays in September. Yeah. But we are going to draw much bigger crowds than what we drew there the year before. 
because we've just got so much good stuff going at this point. Yeah, no doubt. All right, Ron, here's a good point to get that cold drink. We'll take a seat under the learning tree and remind us again, what are the questions for this one? The questions today come from a gentleman named Mark Cole, and he asks, if a wrestler is outselling an injury, do they get booked in another territory while they are out? And if not, does the promoter subsidize their missing payoffs? So it's a good question, but I really like the, there are two good questions here, but I love them because they fit perfectly with this show. You know, wrestlers were notoriously independent when it comes right down to the facts. You know, if they were top tier guys, they pick where they wanted to work and who they wanted to work for, you know, and if they wanted to take a vacation, they'd just come to the booker and say, hey, I want these dates off. And if you're a big time guy, you you said, "Okay, you know, what are you going to say? So if they're top guys and you work with them. Uh, and you wanted to make them happy. If you didn't make them happy, they're going to go away, and they're going to go away to, for good and go work for somebody else. So, you know, you don't have a lot of say in what goes on sometimes when you're dealing with real good talent. Let's take a closer look at, at why Bob Armstrong got burned by Mephisto on July 30th, 1976. This was about a month earlier. And he suddenly disappeared from Southeastern. And I want to explain to fans what happened. So I'd worked with Bob Armstrong in the Florida Territory in 1974 for many months. And we became really close friends in 1974 before I came to Knoxville. And he was still there when I left. And I came to Knoxville to start Southeastern Wrestling. Now, he had heard about the short trips, about how the territory was rapidly growing uh, in the spring of 1976. He's still working Florida Territory, but he's hearing about us at Southeastern. So he called me up and he asked me if I had a spot for him for about a month in July of the upcoming summer. Now, he calls and asks me about this in February. I mean, you know, so he's talking about taking a month in, in July and spending it working in Southeastern. He wanted to see for himself, I think, what was happening in my company and, and if he might be a good place for him to work, you know, in the future. And that's what a lot of guys did. They were going to take a vacation. They would go to another territory and they would work in there just to get a feel for what it was like working there and if this would be a good spot for them someday. And that's what Bob was doing at this point. You know, so he lived close by Marietta, Georgia. It was less than a three hour drive from Knoxville. And he could work in Knoxville. He could spend time with his four sons and his wife and have kind of like a semi-vacation in the month of July and work the Knoxville Territory. When it was over, which was Friday night, July 30th, 1976, he went directly from being burned by Mephisto back to the Florida Territory full time. This was a typical conversation between a star wrestler and an owner and a booker of a territory. He was feeling me out about a future spot as a major star, potentially, in my company. I knew it, and I also knew what a tremendous talent Bob Armstrong was. I put him in my book for July so fast that you you couldn't believe it. I was like, hell yes, are you kidding me? Yes, sure. So, and even though it was February, it was a short conversation. Hell yeah, Bob, you're in. July, you're here. And I didn't care what his long-term plans were at this point, you know. 
I was going to get a bona fide star in the sport for my fast-growing southeastern territory. And if I was smart, I was going to be able to set a foundation for Southeastern's future. If I can get this guy and he likes it here and he wants to stay here, he'll draw money forever. You know, so I couldn't afford to let the opportunity slip through my hands. I was not stupid boy. And I I said, yes, sir, Bob, uh, we'll see you in July. So he arrived on July 9th, 1976. And I put him on the top of the card the very first night he was there. He's in the main event against Toru Tanaka. <laughs> and he would work with another star and with Tanaka uh, of the sport. And, uh, and he got a good payoff. Bob had a great month with Southeastern in July, not only in the ring, but in his billfold, and more importantly, in his life. He had a tremendous month. And he told me, God, Ron, I've got to spend time with my family. I love it. He he got the bug for Southeastern. So now I get to answer the first learning tree question. So the, uh, Mr. Cole asked, if a wrestler was out selling an angle, an injury angle, that's what Bob's doing here in a way. He's not actually hurt. He's just selling the angle. Did they get booked in another territory while they were out? And in a lot of cases, that's what happened. They went to another place and they worked until they got ready to come back there. So, yes. Uh, that did happen, you know. That's what usually happened. And obviously, he wasn't out any pay. He wasn't sitting in a hospital. Uh, he was still making money. So, you know, that question fits perfectly with the scenario of today's show because Bob arrives in early July, stays until the last day of July, and he, while becoming an overnight sensation. And the night he leaves, he's burned by a fast rising heel, the great Mephisto. And he disappears. He was returning to Florida, and he never missed a single day of pay. Mephisto got the heat he needed as a heel. Bob Armstrong got the vacation he needed and a real good feel for what it was going to be like if he ever wanted to work full-time in Southeastern. And fans got to see one of the best of all time, and they're going to be lucky enough to see him on a full-time basis in the future. Not only did Bob get a break, But that had to put Mephisto over big time because the giant fireball around Bob Armstrong's head and people just gasped. I remember you talking about that. It gave Bob some time off, and then they had to look at Mephisto a totally different way. Absolutely. I mean, it worked out tremendous for everybody concerned. It was good for me. It was good for Mephisto to get the heat. It was great for Bob to get the vacation, spend the time with his family. And it was wonderful for the fans that got to see this guy that they had never seen. And they were like, wow, this guy is great. So, um, yeah, it was was a win, 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 however many wins you want to talk about. It was a win for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, now Mr. Cole's second question was if the wrestler did not get booked in another territory and he was legitimately hurt, did the promoter subsidize his missing payoffs? Now, Dave, we've been discussing the dangerous, extremely dangerous concrete blockbusting angle that uh, took the the already fantastic Southeastern TV show where no wrestling show had ever gone. You know, undoubtedly, we made history in 1977 when this happened on the Southeastern Wrestling TV show. And uh, the one where Joe LaDuke's going to attempt to match the stomper's feet from... The, this particular show, 
Uh, so in next week's studcast, part three uh, of today's training, we're going to answer not only the question of Joe LaDuke's fate, what happened to Joe LaDuke next week, but we're also going to answer Mr. Cole's last question here about <laughs> what happens if he gets hurt. All right, Ron, that is pretty smooth. You have blended today's training into this learning tree and left us all hanging again, leaving us wanting more until next week. This has been another remarkable studcast. All right, folks, become friends with Ron on Facebook by simply liking his Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud Facebook page. You can also become friends and learn about Ron's new novel. We were talking about this earlier. The reviews are coming in, and they're amazing. On his new Facebook page, author Ron Fuller Welch, simply like that page. Super Studcast number 32 is breaking records. Jerry, the King Lawler, and Ron are tremendous together. Ron, I bet you want to say something about this one. This is a good one. Oh, my gosh. It was fun. I don't know that I've ever had more fun doing a Super Studcast than this one with Jerry Lawler. And it's an amazing two hours. It's almost two hours. And, uh, and uh, part two is going to be coming out uh, next week. And so... You know, uh, fans, if you you like Jerry Lawler, if you think you know everything about Jerry Lawler, you need to listen to this one because you're going to find out you didn't know everything about Jerry Lawler. I really, really enjoyed it. And so did Jerry. Jerry has talked to me several times since, and uh, he really had a good time as well. It's a great super stud cast. Awesome. All right. So where are we headed to next week? Well, we're going to finish the the tremendous uh, Part three of today's training, obviously, uh, about the great box busting angle of 1977. And at the same time, we're going to answer that second question from today's learning tree. So I'm also going to give everyone the place on YouTube to find the only video that I'm aware of that shows the actual breaking of these concrete blocks on both the Mongolian Stomper and Joe LaDuke's head. Uh, I'll give fans that uh, where, does it, where they can find that on YouTube next week. Uh, we're moving to the baseball stadium. We already talked about it today in Knoxville for the first two weeks of September 1976. Now, Terry Funk's been busy. We're going to talk about the televisions next week that lead up to these shows on uh, in the in the baseball stadium. But Terry's been busy sending these interviews, and uh, he's very worried about the NWA world title match between him and I. And uh, at the Baseball stadium, the first Friday night, I'm going to be wrestling Tanaka in a $5,000 bounty match. Terry Funk now is starting to pay wrestlers if they can beat me or hurt me. And the next Friday night after that, he's going to take it another step. Uh, He's sending his former NWA champion brother, Dory Funk Jr., into Knoxville to wrestle me, to stop me. If a junior can beat me, I don't get Terry. In next week's Learning Tree, we have another great question about whether or not I paid off John Kazana early for my Southeastern Territory because business was so strong. That's a pretty good question, too. You know, I mean, obviously, I'm beginning to make a little money as a young guy, and, and, uh, you know, that that should be an interesting one. So I want to thank all the listeners, obviously, old and new, and we've got a lot of new ones, for the fantastic following that the Studcast are producing nowadays. And uh, if you enjoy what we do, tell your friends about us, obviously. And uh, please take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. Thank you so much for listening. This is David Summers thanking you once again. 
Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.